God doesn't just want us to survive this world and all of its perils. He wants us to thrive. And He opens the path for us to do so by giving us opportunities to elevate our sights beyond the here and now to the horizon of an eternal, ever-expanding future. Through tabernacles of old to temples of today, we've become the recipients of the covenants and ordinances sought after since the earliest ages of mankind. We have been given His higher and holier way. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. What I know about the ancient tabernacles is that they were portable and they were tent-like. They were made of cloth and fur and wood, and they can be transported as the Hebrews wandered in the wilderness. The tabernacle was important to the Israelites because it was a school, a school for them to learn faith, to, to learn obedience. It's important to have sacred places because um, Heavenly Father can be anywhere, but it's hard to hear Him through all the turmoil and worldliness that is our world. What makes a place sacred is what you uh, design it for. Um, also, what you bring in uh, to that space. When we are in sacred places, we have an understanding of who we are and know that we are God's children and that He loves us. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. Today's discussion topics come from our studies of Exodus chapters 35 through 40 and Leviticus chapters 1, 16, and 19. And the two topics we're going to discuss today are first, understanding the ancient tabernacle, and second, the Lord wants me to become holy as He is. And to help us with our discussion topics, we want to welcome back one of our returning scholars, Melissa Inouye. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. It's really fun to be here, and it's such an interesting topic. It's just, I just love the vivid descriptions and the kind of material substance of the tabernacle. We're excited to hear from you. Melissa is a historian with the Church History Department. And seated next to Melissa, we have one of our special guests, Dana M. Pike, joining us. Dana, welcome. Thank you, and I'm equally happy to be here. It's wonderful passages that you invited me to help participate with. So We're excited to learn from you. Uh, Dana is a professor emeritus of ancient scripture and Near Eastern studies at Brigham Young University. So from Exodus, we learned that the tabernacle is a way for the Lord to dwell among us. So before we get into the specifics of the tabernacle, why is it you think that the Lord provides a way to dwell among us. Exodus 24 is such a critical chapter in the book of Exodus because here the Israelites enter into a covenant with the Lord. They've heard His voice and they've heard the Ten Commandments and the other laws have been given through Moses. But in Exodus 24, they make a covenant. So everything from Exodus 24 on, these people are part of a covenant community. They have voluntarily agreed to do what the Lord said. And they said, everything that the Lord said, we're going to do. So now it's the Lord, it's not just coming to earth in general, it's the Lord coming to a group of people who have promised to accept and follow and obey Him. And so there's this setting where He now has the opportunity to engage with them, to commune with them. Okay. And actually we should say that the Hebrew word that's translated tabernacle in the King James Version is mishkan, which means abode or dwelling place. So it really is. He's coming to dwell with them, or at least symbolically His presence would be them with them through the, the tabernacle as it's set up in, in their community. And they're still at Sinai, right? So they've made these covenants. Why can't we just leave it at that? 
Why does he require a physical structure, do you think? Well, it seems to me not so much a requirement, but as, as a gift, right? God is, is coming to be with them in a way that, in which maybe it's easier for people to feel God's presence. I mean, we know that God doesn't need help to be anywhere, okay. right? But I think from a human point of view, sometimes it's hard to feel God. And I know that just like from a kind of current perspective, um, one of the purposes for me of, of Latter-day Temples is that that's a place where I can feel like I'm leaving my normal troubles. I'm kind of going through this special process and it prepares me to be in the right space to feel the Spirit and to hear God's voice. So um, maybe this is like a gift as well. It is, I think. And it's a focal point. I mean, think of Latter-day Prophets encouraging members of the church to have a picture of the temple in their home. Mm, right? it's, okay. It's that, it's that physical gift, but it's a reminder and a focal point so that we can, again, return in our minds and in our hearts to the, to the promises and to the power of the Lord to save us. So. All right. Thank you. I think that helps us to understand why they're building and carrying this structure uh, with them. Now, this is the fun part for me. I love learning about the tabernacle and there's so much detail. If we're trying to paint a picture in our minds, what are some of those details of the tabernacle? Okay, and I'll just first say, we have a, a detailed report of the Lord revealing all of this to Moses, right? Then we have the golden calf incident, the covenants renewed, and now we have a detailed report of them actually doing what the Lord asked them to okay. do, right? So you get a double dose of this <laughs> if you read the, the second half of the book of Exodus. There's a curtain, fabric fence, and it creates the courtyard in which the tabernacle is located. The, the courtyard is about, put it into feet, right? about 75 feet by 150 feet. Okay. The tabernacle itself, the structure proper is 15 feet by 45. So this, we're talking pretty small, but it's portable, right? We call it a portable temple. The Israelites are living in tents in the wilderness. They have not yet arrived at the promised land, and this is going to travel with them. The major items in the courtyard are the altar burnt offering, which is covered with bronze, and then the laver or the basin of water. As you go into the tabernacle proper, as I'm calling it, uh, the structure, which had a wooden frame, but then several layers of skins and fabrics over it, so it would have looked tent-like. The first room, the holy place, as it's called, has three objects that we hear about. There's the table with the bread on it. There's the menorah, had seven oil lamps across the top. And then there's the altar of incense. And that was right in the middle before, stood in front of the veil that then divided that holy place, as it's called, from the most holy place, or the holy of holies, as we call it, which was the back room. And only the only item we hear about in there is the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle is a wonderful illustration of graded or developing sanctity or holiness. So the closer you get to the tabernacle, into the courtyard, then into the first room, and then into the Holy of Holies, it's more holy, but it's also more restricted. Okay. And at least in ancient Israel, only the priests went into the tabernacle proper, representing both the Israelites to the Lord, who is figuratively or symbolically dwelling in the Holy of Holies at the back, but also representing the Lord to them. So Melissa, as we look at some of these symbols of the tabernacle, are there any ones we would benefit from understanding a little more about? I just think that they all had practical functions too. Okay. Like you have light so we can see, um, like, a, a, like a, a menorah burning oil. Um, like flame is alive, right? It, it flickers, it, it's like, it has this vital energy. When my family and I celebrate Christmas, we have an Advent 
um, candlestick with, you know, four candles, and we light each candle um, on the four Sundays before Christmas. And then in the middle of this Advent candlestick, there's a, one single candle, which is the Christ candle, which we light on Christmas um, day, right. you know, when, when baby Jesus is in the house. And in and, and, and that kind of glowing, vital light not only symbolizes, but also just kind of embodies that presence. Like it, it's something alive, it's something real. So how's that changed? your perspective, getting you ready for focusing on Christ and getting ready for those celebrations? Well, that's a great question because I think it really ties into this question of temples. What do temples do? What's the purpose of ritual, right? So when we do these things over and over again, uh, in the first place, we create a space in our lives where we're going to remember God or remember Christ or you know, sing songs about Christ's birth. Um, which we do on the four Sundays before Christmas. And in addition to creating a space, we also create these beautiful symbols. And, and it seems like the tabernacle was beautiful, just like our yeah. modern day temples are, are supposed to be beautiful. And th that, that beauty um, gives us peace, I think. It gives us awe, and it gives us a sense of being in a different place. So that's another way in which I think the, the ancient tabernacle and modern temples create these spaces where we can be better prepared to remember and to meet God. I love that. We've talked about I a lot want to follow of, up on that. Oh, those, please, go ahead. Those yeah. kinds of activities, whether it's Advent or the taking sacrifices to the temple or what the priest did inside the tabernacle, they engage our senses, mm -hmm. right? And, and the tabernacle would have been a sensory, not just a listening or seeing, but smelling, feeling, listening to all the people. But they help engage with the divine, right? This is, again, as I said earlier, a focal point connection between heaven and earth, if you will, the tabernacle by having these symbols and these ritual activities, and I know in the church we don't often use the word ritual, but these activities that were given to engage our attention and help us to participate in and enact various aspects of covenant making and uh, help us to focus on, on the Lord, uh, they're, they're very much an important part of ancient worship and modern worship as well, because they engage us vertically, right, with, with the Lord and the divine. So. So we have this group of Israelites and they're traveling through the wilderness for generations they've been enslaved. And all of a sudden they have this sacred space that they get to carry with them. What are some of the sacred spaces that we carry with us on a regular day-to-day -day basis? Pathan, please. Uh, I think our minds because uh, we our minds are the thing that makes our personality. We can spiritualize our lives uh, with our minds. I love that. Okay, Pathan, I'm gonna ask you a couple more questions. Oh no. So, how do we make sure that our minds are a sacred place? By keeping out pornography and inappropriate things, avoid really anything bad. And if it ends up we can't avoid it sometimes, just do your best to like try to not look at it or something. So let's keep out some bad stuff. What are some of the good stuff that you, Pathan, what do you bring into your mind to keep it a sacred space? Uh, definitely Jesus or God, definitely the temple, sometimes even just Book of Mormon stories. The second you said your mind, I was like, whoa, that was brilliant. That your mind can be a sacred space that you carry with you wherever you're at, in the wilderness, going to school, all these different places. What a great connection you made. Thank you so much, Peyton, for sharing that. Randy. Well, I was thinking in terms of the existence that the 
that the uh, Israelites had it was travel, travel, which is also uh, connected to travail. If you analyze those words, it has an origin that is, has to do with uh, torture even. So we're talking about the labors of the day, the uh, labors of the week. We're given a Sabbath to take our minds, if you will, away from that travail, that travel that the, that the Israelites were obviously doing on a, probably a, a weekly basis moving around. We do the same thing today, don't we? If we live the Sabbath as we should, we, we get away from the, the daily grind. The more often we go to the temple, the more often we're going to have the mental makeup to, to actually worship the Lord. So Randy, how have you made the Sabbath a sacred space for you? Well, scripture study, I mean, we do that every, do that every day, mm -hmm. uh, I would hope. But uh, go to your Sabbath meetings uh, with a mind focused on the Lord. Uh, when you partake of the sacrament, you're renewing the greatest covenant that we make in our baptism, and we're taking, taking upon ourselves the name of Christ. Thank you so much, Randy, for, for sharing that with us. Sure. Another comment. Bird, please. I'm a mom, and I have girls in my house. And for me, as a mom duty, I keep my house as a sacred space for my children. When I go to temple, it's such a sacred, holy place. I want to be there. So I keep my home with temple uh, pictures, the church magazines, and the friend magazine, and then the picture of Christ, of course. You know, those are things that I do to keep my space, you know, for my family. Sometimes I have friends come and your home feels so peaceful. That's my goal is that I want the spirit to dwell so we can, you know, our minds, like he said, can be worthy enough to follow the spirit, to heed the spirit. And eventually, you know, our children can choose the right. So good. Thank you so much, Bird. As we finish this first topic, give us some of your thoughts on what you've heard or anything else you think it's important for us to understand about symbols and sacred places. Well, one thing I think is really interesting, and you read Exodus 35, the first three verses are about the Sabbath. So the Lord has Moses remind the Israelites, the Sabbath is in place. So, and, and the Old Testament does a great job, we sometimes don't pick up on it, of intertwining sacred space and sacred time. So they're gonna observe the Sabbath even while they're in the process of constructing the tabernacle. But I've always found it fascinating, as have many commentators, that uh, Exodus 35, before you get to work, let's remember, there is a Sabbath, and we're gonna observe the Sabbath even while we build this holy structure that's going to represent God dwelling among us. I'm really excited to dive into more of the specifics and more of these details in the footnotes portion of this episode, but this has been a great discussion on understanding the ancient tabernacle. I'm trying to be like Christ by uh, praying more, reading the scriptures more, and just loving everyone around me more. I'm trying to be like Christ currently by serving others and trying to participate more in young women's and in church. I um, focus on more on my daily actions, what I do every day. Most of the time I make sure that I say my daily prayers, read something wholesome, scripture or general conference talks. He was the biggest example. And um, um, I think the one thing that I, that I always love is, is that he was around everyone. He didn't care what people did and uh, what they looked like. Um, so I think that's, that's something that I think I'm trying to become more like Jesus. So the second topic we're going to discuss today is the Lord wants me to become holy as he is. 
Now, uh, something that surprised me when I was uh, reading these chapters, in the 39th chapter of Exodus, uh, verse 30, and this will sound familiar to a lot of uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as we consider our modern-day temples. It says, And they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote upon it in a writing like to the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. So as we talk about this second topic of becoming holy, I was just curious, how do we even define that term, holy? Typically in in the Old Testament, holiness is the opposite of the fallen world. So you get clean and unclean, uh, pure and impure. Uh, Holiness is something that's holy is set apart from regular use. Okay. Take the Sabbath, for example. The Sabbath day is a day, a holy day. It's not, you don't do the same things you do the other six days of the week. On the Sabbath, you set it apart from the things and cares of the world to focus on more divine things. Melissa? Well, and I just wanted to ask Dana, since you're our expert, so the, the crown that says holiness to the Lord is on the turban. Of the this is on the cap that the high priest wore, and it's the gold plate that's on the top. that goes on the forehead, if you will. Oh, okay. So as he, everywhere he went in his ceremonial garb, that inscription, holiness, or as it's often translated now, holy to the Lord, okay. is, is visible, right? So in his role as the Aaronic, and we say high priest when we're doing Old Testament, especially from Exodus on, it's always the Aaronic high priest, Right. Sometimes okay. Latter-day Saints will think Melchizedek high priest because we're used to that in, in the modern church. Mm-hmm. But in, in the Old Testament, it's high priest is the Aaronic high priest. So Aaron is the first Aaronic high priest. It's named after him. His sons become the priests. Uh, they are set apart. They wash. They're anointed with oil. They're also anointed with blood. And then they function in that set-apart status on behalf of the Lord to represent him to the people. I, this is like, I really appreciate that clarification because I'd always thought, you know, like the temple is like the place where we say holiness of the Lord, but actually it was on, it was on a person. Yes. It was on a person who, yeah. um, you know, held the priesthood and officiated in the rites of the temple. Yes. Yeah. And I think this is a good place if I can hop in with a comment. Um, we read the Old Testament, again, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Christians call it the Old Testament because we have a New Testament okay. as well, right? And Jewish people don't have a New Testament, so to speak. As we read these chapters about the tabernacle, it, it doesn't talk about Jesus, right? It doesn't say, bring your animal and it's going to be burned on the altar to remind you of the sacrifice Jesus is going to make in 1300-ish years or whatever, right? Um, so Jewish people don't see Jesus here. Okay. And many Christians even don't see Jesus here. Latter-day Saints with the Restoration have an entirely different perspective on gospel belief and understanding in antiquity. So based on the Book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price, we would say Adam and Eve knew the gospel of Jesus Christ, taught it to their children. Moses 5, an angel explains to Adam that the, the animal that he's offering on that altar is representing the Son of God and the sacrifice he'll make in the future. But Latter-day Saints are the only people with that perspective. Okay. I think it's helpful to keep that in mind because sometimes as, as uh, we read the Old Testament, we say, where's Jesus here, right? The other thing to remember is Jesus, as Latter-day Saints believe, is Jehovah. So he's, he's everywhere in a sense, but the name Jesus Christ is not in the Old Testament as that we might be looking for. 
Well, and also, I, I like what you say there because um, I think it helps us to just respect Israelite religion. Um, Jesus himself was a Jew, and he um, you know, participated in these, he, he read the Hebrew Bible, and he participated in these temple rites as they had been practiced by, uh, by the Jews for thousands of years. So I think we can, I, I like that because sometimes I think we, we, we like read through the scriptures, uh, through other people's scriptures, in this case, it's the, he, the Hebrew Bible, and we just say like, oh yeah, we know what all that stuff means, mm-hmm. but we don't like appreciate what it meant, what it means to the people whose scriptures it actually is. Without adding what we believe as Latter-day Saints, it's, you know, it's beautiful and it's sacred. Thank you for sharing that. So how does that affect the, in this effort to become holy, uh, what is the role of animal sacrifices in the Israelites becoming more holy? You know, nowadays when we think about ritual killing of animals, that sounds really weird. Like who would go out and like buy a nice bunny? Well, it wasn't a bunny. Buy a nice, um, you know, cow and, and, you know, cut its throat and chop it up and burn it. Like that sounds really weird to us. But that was their wealth. Um, for the Israelites, that was their wealth. It was their livelihood. It was their precious resource. So it would be like us today taking our laptops and um, you know checking them on the altar and smashing them up. Can we make cell phones too? Can we just throw our, our cell, cell phones, phones on That'd be great. Um, <laughs> our time. So they took what was of the most value and, um, and their very best. Like, um, so I think that helps me understand it as mm-hmm. their sacrifice. How does that make you holy? Well, when you take what, what you need the most, what you've worked the hardest to get, and then you offer that to God um, in, in gratitude or as a sign of a, of a covenant of repentance or something like that. You know, and I like how you said that, because today when we want to participate in temple ordinances, there is a certain level of sacrifice. So you have to give up certain things to be able to participate. And that reminds me, we had a, what a wonderful question from, a, from our viewers. I'd love to get your, your take and your thoughts on how it connects with us today. I'm Kehlani and I'm from Taiwan. I just have one quick question. Since we need temple recommends to go to the temple today, do they also need a recommend of sorts to go to their tabernacle at the time? Well, the quick answer is we don't know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's an interesting question. I like the question a lot. The Old Testament never talks about it. We hear hear principles. I'm thinking the beginning of Psalm 24. Right, so the Lord's created the earth and the seas and everything. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? It's talking about, in that case, who's gonna to go to the temple in Jerusalem, but the principle is the same. Those that have clean hands and a pure heart. Right, this sense of I, I'm doing, I'm, I'm making a sincere effort to live according to the commandments, according to the covenants that I've made, the Lord's word and, and will, that qualified you. Israelites coming to worship at the, te- at the tabernacle and later at the temple, bringing their sacrifices, uh, singing, praying, listening to priests or prophets teach. I mean, those would have all been kind of worship activities that would have engaged there. The Israelites, as far as we know, who came to the courtyard to worship, we don't think they needed a temple recommend, especially right. in, the, in the Old Testament era. Right? Okay. Melissa. From a church history perspective, you know, Latter-day Saint temples haven't always required temple recommends either. Like at the Kirtland Temple, people didn't have recommends to get I in. I didn't know that. That's no. a, oh, okay. Well, Please, our, our temple practice has evolved. The okay. Kirtland Temple was very different 
I did, we didn't do all the ordinances in the Kirtland Temple that we did in the Nauvoo Temple. And even um, in, the Nauvoo, in the Nauvoo era, temple ordinances were not always performed in the temple itself. They were performed before it was dedicated, right? And, and people were introduced to those kind of gradually through an interpersonal connection. So, so this is all to say that um, in, even in Latter-day Saint times, we haven't always had temple recommends. Mm. Can we agree that there is some level of participate or a preparation before they participated in these temple ordinances yeah, practices? I think we can say that. Temple ordinances for them would have been the sacrificial offering. Okay. The priests, we read in Leviticus that the priests were supposed to wash, not supposed to be drinking wine or anything, not intoxicated when they went <laughs> to perform their service in the tabernacle. So even for the priests who are functioning on behalf of the rest of the Israelites who were not allowed into the tabernacle proper. There was a process of preparation okay. um, for them as well, because especially in their case, they're, they're approaching the presence of God, and that was not to be done lightly. And the high right. priest literally had and a sign that said, holy to the Lord. <laughs> reminded him and everybody else. Right. That makes me think about um, this cool quote by Carol McConkie. And, and I think sometimes we think holiness is perfection. And that's super stressful to think that you have a sign on your forehead that says like perfect. But what she says is holiness is in the striving and the struggle to keep the commandments and to honor the covenants we have made with God. Holiness is making the choices that will keep the Holy Ghost as our guide. Holiness is setting aside our natural tendencies and becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. Every moment of our lives must be holiness to the Lord. So I like what she says here because she defines holiness mm. as struggle mm. and that kind of ongoing attempt to, to be holy as opposed to perfection, which obviously I think is hard to achieve in this life. Participating in these these sacred ordinances, um, whether it was a tabernacle or modern day temples, it does take a process. And I, so I'm curious from, uh, from all of you, what are some of the things that you do leading up to you participating in these sacred temple ordinances? Kendall. As we've been discussing this topic of holiness, I just keep coming back to the thought too that we can ask for help to be holy. I love going to the temple with a question in mind. I think that's a thing that helps me be a little bit more focused, but it's helpful for me to have a topic in mind and ask those questions. Do you feel like there's a difference as you're seeking these answers, trying to find them by going to the temple and trying to find them outside the temple? Absolutely. I, I love knowing that I can create, you know, the sacred space in my own life, but there's something really powerful about going to the Lord's house and inviting him to help me with those decisions and questions that I am seeking answers for. I think it shows my efforts to include him in my decisions when I choose to go to his house and say, I need help with this. I love that. I love how you said that it helps it really shows that you have to put in some extra effort as you're seeking uh, for those answers. We've talked about a lot of really good things, and I'm excited as we move forward uh, in footnotes to discuss these things a little bit more. But this has been a really good discussion on how the Lord wants me to become holy as He is. What I really enjoyed most about the discussion today was about how you can find a holy place Today, I learned that any place can be a holy place, specifically by trying to remember the Lord and having more reverence for what I'm doing. Sharing our experiences 
with each other, our spiritual experiences, our insights into the gospel can help build all of our individual testimonies and it helps lift us up and connect us together as members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. Uh, we wanna welcome our additional guest, Ben Hammond, who is a portrait artist and sculptor. I'm excited to learn uh, specifically from you and uh, in, in your specialty because we're talking about the tabernacle. There's been a lot of craftsmanship that has uh, taken place and a lot of different aspects of the tabernacle. You wanna give us a little uh, brief overview of some of the artistry and craftsmanship that has gone in to the tabernacle. So we read in Exodus 35, 36, that people are bringing things and that the Lord has chosen two, I guess you could call them general contractors, right? Beit Salel and Oholiab to be kind of leading the, the work, but uh, women are weaving things, men are bringing and, and working on things. And so we've got fabric, we've got wood, we've got metal, I mean, all, all kinds of media that uh, are part of the production here. And the Holy of Holies is, is representing the presence of God. Right? So it's gotta be nice. Whatever is going in that room has to be something Well, what's is. interesting is it's a perfect cube based on the dimensions we have. And again, changing the cubits to feet. It's 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And so just the symmetry of it, I think, is meant to represent a, a, a sense of perfection. Okay. The only item in the room is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, which is, an, it's an ark, it's a wooden box that's covered with gold. According to the, to the Old Testament, the two tables of stone that Moses, the second set, after the first were broken, right? Mm -hmm. The second set that he brought down, uh, were put in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. So it's the box holding the physical symbols of God's commandments and that represent the covenant that he made with the Israelites and that they accepted. And then on the top, mercy seat, as it's called in King James, sometimes people call it the atonement cover, pure gold, and it's got the two cherubs on top facing each other with their wings kind of coming up. We have a lot of examples of ancient Near Eastern art. King's thrones typically had a cherub on either side kind of as protectors, okay. uh, in, you know, right? Their protection and strength and what have you. There's this interesting parallel between real life kings and artwork and, and, the, and the imagery that was part of a, walking into the throne room of a human king that's now represented walking into the throne room of the heavenly king, Jesus, the Holy One, Jehovah, right? Sitting on or sitting behind the Ark of the Covenant. It's, so Ben, as you look at this story, you're looking at it through the eyes of an artist. What are some of the thoughts that go through your mind from that artistic perspective in regards to the tabernacle? Well, I think one of the things that a lot of people may not realize is that um, just having artistic talent isn't enough. A lot of people are born with artistic talent. It's those that devote themselves consecrate, if you will, their lives to developing that talent. For some reason, people think, oh, you have artistic talent, you can draw, you can do anything. And that's not the case. You really need to learn it. You need to be trained. You need to have that skill honed. All the great artists in history have been in the right place at the right time with the right mentors and the right environment where they can maximize their skill. And I think of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they happened to be, even though they were enslaved, they were in the center of learning visual art, architecture, science. I mean, the best that the world had to offer at that time was in that space where they were. 
And I imagine that those uh, Israelites that had the gift, had the talent, were able to be recognized by those there and, and hone that skill. Because you can't just go out into the wilderness and start you know, melting down metals and creating. I mean, when it goes through all the description of the Ark of the Covenant, how it was made, those weren't skills that someone just like, oh, I think I want to like cast this in gold right. and know how to do that. You'd have to be trained to a certain amount. So that's one thing that's really important for people to understand. An artist, just like any other skill you learn, you have to be mentored and taught. So the Israelites weren't just brick builders. You know, they weren't just, they were... Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. I'm sure there were a lot of them that had to just stomp their feet in the mud and add straw and things like that that, <laughs> that we see in um, film that they show. But I'm sure there were those that you recognize their great skill and they were, you know, taught and apprenticed to do certain things because what the Egyptians were building at the time, you'd need as many skilled craftsmen okay. and laborers as possible to do what they did. When you read over it, it seems like you, you just read over it, and then um, in, the, in the course of, it just takes a few minutes to read, but it must have taken a lot of time to make. Right, absolutely. It and looks like a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work. In fact, I remember the first commission I worked on uh, with my mentor, he was commissioned to do a wagon train in bronze, cast in bronze, and it was a city block long. And they were also building a 40-story tower for this bank in Omaha. And the president of the bank said, well, we're gonna have this tower done in four years. Why is it gonna take you guys 20 years to do this wagon train? And they said, well, we can't just hire more. There aren't like a plethora of skilled sculptors out there that know how to do this. It's just me and an apprentice, and we're gonna do this. And, and so it was interesting for that bank president who was used to, well, I'll just, I'll pay more money and you get more people. And it was like, no, we can't do that. In order to do this right, it takes time. It takes this level of skill that not everybody has. 20 years later, I was having lunch with the same bank president and he remembered that. He said, I remember you telling me that this would take a lot longer than to build this big 40 story building that's right here in downtown Omaha. He said, now I understand why, now that I know more about the process and, and what it takes. And that was really interesting to hear from him to understand that perspective. Thank you. I think another dimension that we find, and it's, it's the first couple of verses in Exodus 36, we get the names of two leading craftsmen, right? Bezalel and Aholiab, and everybody else, every wise-hearted person in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work. And so the Bible is attributing, yeah, they have skills, but they're, they're getting inspiration or assistance, divine assistance. To, to maximize those skills. And you don't have to be an Israelite, you don't have to be a Latter-day Saint. I mean, we've got people throughout history that I think have been blessed with extra help to, uh, to produce beautiful, beautiful works. And here, what more beautiful for them at that time in that place than what's going to, rep what becomes and represents the dwelling of God in their midst, so. Please. Can I just riff on that? So just before that, um, in the previous chapter, um, Moses says to the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and hath filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom, in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. And it talks about how awesome he is as an artisan. And then he says, And he hath put in his heart that he may teach. And he talks about the people he's taught, who, who are his apprentices. Um, and that's like the other skill, right? You can have the skill, but then to be able to convey that to someone else is a whole new level of skill. So Ben, I'm curious, you work a lot on a lot of things that are 
spiritual, and I guess, I don't know if I want to call it secular, <laughs> uh, in, your, in your work. Uh, what is that process like for you as, as far as the involvement of the Spirit in your work? Do you find that it exists in everything you do? So the first time I went to Europe with my wife, we were in Rome, and uh, this had been building up as I've been seeing other magnificent works of art. But for some reason, this particular sculpture in Rome in San Pietro in Vincoli. You piqued my interest. You okay. mentioned Rome and my... <laughs> <laughs> where you served your mission. I, that's where I served my mission, yeah. Okay, so you know just where I'm talking about. And you walk in, and it's the tomb of uh, Pope Julius. And I was, I, I've read the story, the Michelangelo and the Pope ceiling. I know this is what Michelangelo really wanted to do the whole time he was working on the Sistine Chapel. He wanted to be sculpting. He didn't want to be painting frescoes on a ceiling. And uh, I walk into this room just, you know, not knowing, I guess, really what to expect. I've just been so overwhelmed by all this magnificent artwork I've been seeing for the last couple of weeks. And when I walked in there, I... I I couldn't believe what I felt. It was such a powerful, overwhelming feeling. I was there for almost six hours. My wife was pregnant with our first child. She was on the pew. It was a, it's a funny story. When I finally left, I see my wife laying on a pew in the lap of a nun who's caressing her hair. Because my wife, had just she was tired. She was pregnant. She fell asleep. So this nun is taking, the sweet nun is taking care of my wife while I spent literally six hours staring at a single piece of artwork and I'm sketching, I'm taking notes in my sketchbook and I wrote in my sketchbook, I feel the spirit while I'm looking at this thing. This, wow. is, this is as powerful as my two years of missionary service as far as a paradigm shift spiritually in my perspective of how I want to live my life. I wanted to be able to create something with my hands that carried that kind of spirit. And I realized at that point that it didn't matter what the narrative was, that it was a, that it, if it was Moses or somebody from any point in history, whether it's made up or anything, I just knew that when it's wonderful and it's well executed, it has its own spirit. And so when I came home, everything changed. Every, my perspective of how I approached a piece of artwork changed. I wanted it to be composed beautifully. I wanted to breathe life into my statue. I wanted to, my, my pieces to have the feeling that Michelangelo's did where I'd take a double take and wonder if that rib cage expanded. Like, wow. did that person just take a breath? And when I started applying that trying to gain that skill and apply it to my, my own artwork, not that I'm anywhere near Michelangelo, but I'd have people turn to me with tears in their eyes, like, wow. this is so amazing. Like, tell me about this piece of artwork that, that, that wasn't a religious narrative. It wasn't a sculpture of Jesus or anything like that. It was just a piece of artwork that, because of my efforts in trying to make it great, was able to, to touch someone. And so that's... Where, when someone asks, so do you do religious artwork? No, I do artwork, but I'm a religious person and I hope that my, my testimony and my feelings about sacred things is passed through my artwork. So it may not always be religious, but is it safe to say that it's always spiritual? Yes, and I believe the great artwork is. Whether I'm sculpting a, a nude figure or whether it is a sculpture of the Savior, which I've done both things, um, I want them to be sacred and beautiful. I want whoever views that to, to, um, to feel some connection to the divine. 
And that's, that's kind of my job, I feel. I think Michelangelo did it. I think all of the great artists that I admire do it and have done it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And it's not easy. When you talk about these wise-hearted people, I love that in Exodus it uses that phraseology to describe these artisans as wise-hearted, both the men and the women that toiled on the tabernacle as wise-hearted. And to me, that means their people, when you think about the heart and the scriptures describe the heart, God's asking us to change our heart and follow him. I love the idea of artisans that have their heart changed following God. That doesn't mean that everything they do is a religious narrative piece or anything like that, but because of their own goodness and their own desire to be great and express their love for God by their craftsmanship, I think that changes the spirit of their work. I grew up building homes and you put molding together and you'd fill in all the cracks with caulk before it got painted. And my grandpa could use a coping saw and fit two pieces of molding together so tight that you wouldn't need any painter's putty or caulk. And I'm like, there's someone that was wise hearted. My grandfather was dedicated to that skill and wanted to do it as well as possible. Not that he got paid more because he did his moldings better than someone else or anything like that. That was just him individually as a wise hearted individual and it came through in his craftsmanship. I love that. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. So specifically talking about the, the skill and the effort that went into uh, creating the, the, constructing the tabernacle, why is it you think that the Lord, I don't know if I want to say insisted, but why have such nice, precious things? Why is he kind of having these wise-hearted individuals construct sometimes to, I'm, I'm guessing, a lot of time, a lot of effort as a part of the worship experience. To become like our Savior is a, is, it takes constant effort, constant repentance, constant change. How can I do better? Um, that 1% better each day. How can I be a little bit better? And I think that the craftsmanship, trying to do the very best you can, is a, is a reflection of your own devotion to God. I just think that through that meticulous study and trying to understand something, it's a parallel for how you should be living your life. You should be meticulously trying to be a little bit better. And I think when you see the best that human craftsmanship has to offer in an expression of devotion to God, that tells God that I'm devoted to you, I'm devoted to my craft, I want to be better, I want to do the best I can, whether it's, I want to be a better parent, I want to be a better artist, I want to be a better teacher, you know, those things take a lot of effort. It doesn't just happen because you want it to happen. You have to literally, physically do something about it. So Melissa, I would love to get your perspective on uh, the involvement of the women in this process of creating and building these beautiful, this beautiful tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle's walls were made out of fabric. They were made out of a soft material. And the people who spun that were wise-hearted women. So in Exodus chapter 35, verse 25 and 26, it says, And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. So these are tricky things to spin. They took these 
materials, fluffy things that come off of animals, you know, animal proteins, and they spun them into this workable material which could then be woven into the walls of the temple. So the very walls of the, of the tabernacle were, were created um, through the work of women. And that reminds me of this awesome rug, which was here is very cool. Wow, this awesome rug. But a woman named Rebecca Sherinian, a Latter-day Saint in Armenia, took this wool and spun it dyed it into these different colors you see here. I'm going to give it to the artist to look at so you can appreciate <laughs> it artistically. Um, she, she dyed all those different colors. Then she created her own original pattern, and you can see all the different, you know, pattern motifs yes. in the rug. She designed that, and then she wove it so that it made the patterns. Um, it's just incredible. So the, the skill and the time, it was an eight, it's an eight-foot-long rug, four and about four and a quarter feet wide. Mm -hmm. So this massive accomplishment in terms of all the sheep, all the dyeing, all the spinning, all the practice, the, you know, the practicing, the patterning, everything. And um, it's just incredible. And so she, she gave this to Anton Lund when he was coming through Armenia in 1898. And she said, this is for the Salt Lake Temple. And he took it back, and Lorenzo R. Snow uh, wrote her a thank you note and said, you know, dear Sister Sherinian, um, we are so grateful for this beautiful rug, and we have put it in the council room, the Apostles' Council Room in the Salt Lake Temple. And it was there for many years. Actually, if you see um, the tassels on the end, they're kind mm -hmm. of ragged. That's because they appear to have fallen victim to vacuum cleaners. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so but it was in there for a long time. Um, and, and now it's in, in the Church History Museum. So it's just an example of uh, the work of women's hands, which continues to adorn these sacred spaces. And, you know, to make something like a rug, I think is an, a special sacrifice because it's different from making like the tomb of a pope that will always be like right. venerated. A rug is something you step on and vacuum, right? right? And so wow. that that's like, and so often I feel like the work of women's hands is in creating these masterpieces which don't last that long, like dinner or, um, <laughs> uh, you know, clean children or, or a clean house. I'm not, I'm not saying that women are the only people who do this, but historically, right. um, especially if you look at the way that labor has been divided up historically, um, I'm not saying it's ideal, but historically, uh, women are always producing these things that are often soft, often, often made for everyday use, and, and they get worn down. And so, um, you know, while we have like the, the stone walls of the temple, which has stood forever, you know, the carpets that women made to go inside the Salt Lake Temple, um, they're no longer the carpets that we use. Mm -hmm. right? Right. But that doesn't mean that their work is any less consecrated. Right. Yeah. What do you think about this rug, oh, artist? I think <laughs> it's beautiful even now. I mean, I can't imagine what it must have looked like when it was brand new in the temple before it got exposed to some lights and things like that. But absolutely beautiful. And again, I, I love what you said about what people made is temporary. When you think about this world, everything we create, even Michelangelo's sculpture, there's a sculpture by Daniel Chester French that's in the Metropolitan Museum that every time I read in the Book of Ether and I think of the world being wrapped up like a scroll and everything being taken away, and I'm like, can't that sculpture, <laughs> I mean, that was the first American that ever won the Paris Salon. I mean, wow. it's just, can we keep that one? But no. Everything we create with our hands will, everything of this world will eventually be taken away. But won't, what won't be taken away are those wise hearts, these wise-hearted men and women who consecrated their hearts to the Lord in creating these beautiful things. And I love that symbolism that everything we create will pass away, 
But if we change our hearts, what we change in our hearts never will. Is One of the greatest revelations I think that Joseph Smith received was that whatever intelligence we gain in this life will go with us. And it's not the skill that they gained as much as their heart that was changed in creating this. And the and mother- how, And how our hearts are changed by experiencing it. Right. So that, that will stay with me even if I've never made a rug or, or a, sculpt, <laughs> uh, you know, a sculpture. I can be changed by that. Right. And that can stick with me. Yeah, so there's the giving and the receiving there. We're reading in here in Exodus that the colors of the fabrics for the veils were red, blue, and purple. And there's a lot of red and some blues in there. The Old Testament doesn't tell us why the Lord said make them these colors. It doesn't explain the symbolism. People have guessed, right? Yeah, you just answered my next question. I was like, wait, why those specific colors? Uh, so, the, I mean, the common guess is, and they make good sense, right? That the blue represents the sky, heaven, purple, royalty. That's even in antiquity, that was a common color uh, to represent royalty. And the blood typically is thought to represent it's the sacrificial blood that was being offered and blood, read in Genesis 9 and elsewhere, blood represents life. And from a Christian perspective, it represents the sacrificial blood of the lamb, Christ, who gives us life through his sacrifice. Well, those are good enough so, for me. I'm gonna write that down okay. and I'm taking that to the bank with okay. me. And right. interesting <laughs> thing about that too is blue is one of the most rare pigments. In order to get blue, even through the Renaissance, I mean, it was hard to get. Like, so mm -hmm. just to have blue dyed cloth at, or, or thread or whatever, that was a huge thing. That required somebody going somewhere or having the certain knowledge just to get that color that didn't exist just everywhere in the world. And that's oh, another wow. fascinating, when you really break down what the Lord asked, they could say, well, why don't we just do earth tones? Those are all way easier. Why do you gotta <laughs> throw in the blue to get a blue? That's, we're gonna have to go across the, Mediterranean maybe or, or something like that to get it. And so I, President Nelson has said the Lord loves effort and he requires effort. And I think the more effort we put into our craftsmanship, whatever it is, whether it is making dinner for our family, a rug for the tabernacle or the temple or a piece of sculpture, it should show that dedication, that effort that the Lord requires of us during this mortal sojourn. So the question I have is, why are we blessed with so many of these different talents? You know, we talk about consecration. We're consecrating our, our efforts. You know, the, these Israelites are consecrating their efforts to, for this tabernacle. What's the end game? What are, we, what are we striving for? I know that the Lord cares what kind of sculptor I am. I know that he wants me to be great, but I know that he also cares more that I'm a good husband and father and a good neighbor so it goes back to the, once again, I'm gonna say this again, that wise-hearted, has my heart been changed? Because mm. I could create the most wonderful works of art that have ever been created. It wouldn't do me any good if my heart hadn't been changed. Okay. And I hope that as I work harder and harder to become a great artist, that it keeps spilling over into being a good husband, a good father, which those are the things I feel, I feel much more guilty about how I'm doing there than I ever do with my artwork. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's, what I, that's what I really wanna be known for, I hope. Just everything you're saying, it really does draw us back to something that the tabernacle was designed to do. We're progressing towards something, and this is what I really was hoping to, to get a little more into, um, getting to the, pro the progression that leads us to the Holy of Holies. 
people call it degrees of holiness or grades of sanctity. I mean, it gets lots of different similar sounding titles. And for Christians, and again, we're taking the Christian route here. It doesn't say this in the, New, in the Old Testament. Many Christians have taken the passage in Mark 15 and Matthew 27, where it says when Jesus died finally on the cross and the veil of the temple, this would have been Herod's temple, was ripped from mm -hmm. the top to the bottom and have associated that back to the temple imagery to say, through Jesus' sacrifice, culminating in his crucifixion on the cross, he opens the veil so that not just the Aaronic high priest could go symbolically in once a year on the Day of Atonement, but that Christ's sacrifice makes it possible for all of God's children to enter his presence if they're willing to be obedient and faithful and offer sacrifice and make covenants and have the Holy Spirit as their guide and are enjoying the, the gifts, the influence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So the, the tabernacle and later the Israelite temples are really, from a Latter-day Saint point of view, kind of a plan of salvation, a model mm -hmm. in, in architecture or layout of, of the plan of salvation, and the progression through which we can go to return into the presence of our heavenly parents, as we say. So. Thank you so much for sharing that. Melissa, any last thoughts? Um, well, I was just thinking about, um, you asked what is like, how does God, what is the point of God giving people gifts? And of course, in Moses chapter one, verse 39, God says, behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And I think about how our heavenly parents have given their children gifts to help people, like um, not just gifts of being able to be artisans, but gifts of being able, you know, at the church history department, my fellow historians have all these stories where they're trying to tell someone's story and they can't find the sources they need. But then miraculously, they run into a woman from Angola who was the person who has the story that they were trying to find till the history of the church in wow. Angola. And, and they find, you know, and they, they get all this information. They're able to tell that sacred story. But it's just wonderful to see how um, we can use these talents and develop them through hard work to make them serve other people. I think also of a woman named Isohe Ikponamwen, who is um, a Latter-day Saint in Nigeria. And she has a distinction of being probably one of the highest ranking um, judicial officials in Latter-day Saint, um, Latter-day Saintdom, I was going to say. <laughs> that sounds um, good. But as a Latter-day Saint, she earned this reputation for being fearless and incorruptible, you know, in a place where there's quite a lot of corruption mm -hmm. and where it would take fearlessness to, to mm -hmm. be that way. And, you know, she's used her gifts and, and cultivated them through her legal training and through her hard work and through her dedication to the Lord and, and use those gifts to serve the people, not just Latter-day Saints, but you know, to serve all of God's children. I love that. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation as we've talked about understanding the ancient tabernacle and the Lord wants me to become holy as he is. I really appreciated all of your contributions. And thank you all for joining us at home. And we want to again invite you that if you have had any promptings from the Holy Ghost, that you will take the courage to follow those promptings. Please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.